the past several times I've um, preached, I've tried to tell the story of a few uh, key players in the Elder Testament, uh, some people I feel like we should know about. And uh, here are the people that we've looked at so far. You can see the list, Jonah and Joseph, Job, Naaman, and Balaam. You may remember some of those now. But not only do I want you to hear their story, I want you to see how God interacts with them in their individual situations. And my premise is that when we, when we are in similar situations, God will treat us the same as he does them. His work, his love, his grace in our lives, his plans for us. Um, though God is mysterious, some of those things don't have to be so much of a mystery to us. So Isaiah is the one in our spotlight this morning. Uh, he was a prophet, and like most prophets, he probably had a hard time making friends. He probably wouldn't have been invited to a Super Bowl party. He probably didn't meet many people at Coffee Times or Double H. He probably wasn't the guy you'd call if you needed help moving. I think the life of a prophet, prophet would have been a bit lonely. Uh, what he had to say, well, people didn't want to hear it. And they would rather Isaiah stay away or at least if he was around, to keep his mouth shut. Here are a few of the friendly messages he'd leave on people's doorsteps. He left a gift from God for Babylon, and he said, you're going down. He left a gift for Damascus, and he said, you're no longer going to be a city, but you'll be a heap uh, in a pile of uh, uh, ruins in a, in a heap pile, however he said that, but I can't say it that well. <laughs> his gift to Cush was the message that everyone in Cush will be left to the mountain birds of prey and to the wild animals. And he had a similar message for Egypt and Moab and Assyria. So he was a real life of the party kind of guy. Uh, so you can imagine that his phone book wasn't full of friends. Today, as we turn the spotlight on to Isaiah, let me just give you a little backdrop. Uh, Isaiah was an aristocrat. Uh, he lived in the urban confines of Jerusalem. He was exposed to the finest culture of that day. For 40 years and through the reign of four different kings, uh, he, he lived during those times. From 760 to 698 B.C., Isaiah had easy access to the palace. Isaiah seemed to be gifted in a lot of areas. He was known for words. He was known for being a poet. Uh, he was politically astute. One historian says he was to the 8th century Judah what Churchill was to England in the 1940s. He lived during the same era as Amos and Hosea, and he shared their outlook on Israel and God. And along with those prophets, Isaiah understood that Israel was missing the point. The point was not about smoky sacrifices and elaborate rituals. The point was love and compassion and justice for their fellow human beings. God was interested in building community, not so much in building temples and altars. In Isaiah's day, the social fabric of Israel had become rotted with injustice and corruption, and it was sure to collapse. As a boy, Isaiah would have idolized Israel's king, Uzziah. Uzziah was recognized as being the most effective ruler over Judah since Solomon. For 50-plus years, he had guided Israel with great wisdom and stability, and prosperity had come to the nation under his rule. However, toward the end of his reign, Uzziah made an impulsive decision. One day in the temple, he became impatient about the way the incense was being offered. So he pushed aside the priest to offer the sacrifice himself. And as he ignored the priest's warning and headed toward the altar of incense, 
leprosy began to break out on his forehead. As he may have been the king, he wasn't a priest. And God had identified the priest to do the temple work. So from that day on, Uzziah lived in a separate house and was kept out of the temple due to his leprosy. Now, that, that event could have shaken up a young Isaiah on a couple of levels. First level is, why would his hero do such a thing? The second level is, who is this God we worship? And what kind of power are we up against? Israel had fallen into a carelessness, maybe even a coziness. And this coziness had led them down a lazy, decadent road. They took the fact that they were God's chosen nation and, to begin, and began to presume Onto God and treat him lightly. Uzziah's decision was reflective of the attitude of the whole nation. So all of Israel was shaken because they realized God is serious and he demands to be treated with respect. So that's a little background coming into this section of Isaiah that I want to talk about today, which is Isaiah 6. This text is, is pretty significant in our Older Testament. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now King Uzziah had died at this point when Isaiah entered the temple, but Isaiah saw a different king. He saw the king of kings. He saw the Lord In all of his glory, and maybe Isaiah was at the same spot in the temple Uzziah was when he violated the temple protocol. Check out a few details in Isaiah's description of this vision that he's been given. These seraphim are angels. They're not sissies. They are powerful, and they are radiant, and they are a force. Anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, what's the first thing they say? Do not be every time. It's the exact same response. Why do they say that? Because angels are scary. They're intimidating. And they're no different in Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah 6. Listen to what they're saying as they fly around God's throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is the crux of Isaiah's vision. Uh, The song of the seraphim reveals the main message of this amazing encounter. Three times the seraphim called out the word holy. The significance is obvious. Repetition in Hebrew poetry is a form of emphasis. Uh, When we want to emphasize something in English, we have several ways to do that. We may underline or italicize or put it in bold or uh, all caps, exclamation point. This this calls the reader's attention to something important. One One technique used by the ancient Jewish writers was repetition. It's the only attribute of God, attribute of God repeated three times in succession. The word holy. We don't hear love, 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 or wise, wise, wise. We hear holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We don't use the word woe very often, do we? We might say, wow, that's amazing. I've heard Hunter say, whoa there, hoss. That's, that's about the only time I've heard the word ho. We, uh, whoa. <laughs> I didn't anticipate that mistake. 
Um, so, <laughs> whoa with a W is an important <laughs> is an important word in the Bible. Um, <laughs> oh man! When prophets announced their messages, they either had good news or bad news to tell. The positive announcements were introduced with the word blessed, like Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. The negative announcement were introduced with the word woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. If you heard the word woe, you knew a message of doom was headed your way. In the Bible, this word precedes announcements of dooms on, a doom on countries and nations and cities and even individuals. Um, listen to these a few woes Isaiah dropped on some folks prior to Isaiah 6. This is in chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. Woe, uh, who, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. I want you to notice this. Isaiah's use of the word woe in chapter 6 is a bit unique. When he saw the Lord, he pronounced judgment on whom? Himself. Woe to me. I'm, I'm undone. I'm ruined. Isaiah is telling us he's, he's coming apart at the seams. In the presence of the Lord Almighty, he's, he's unraveling. Isaiah was a man who others saw as having his, his stuff together. He was considered a righteous man, a respected man, a man of integrity. But when he caught a glimpse of God, all of that was shattered. It was undone. It was blown apart. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he felt totally exposed. And as long as I, I comp- Isaiah compares himself to other men, he, he looks... Pretty good, but when placed in the same room as the ultimate standard, he is absolutely annihilated. The glue which holds his life together, his goodness, his accomplishments, his strength, his wisdom, he now sees that as utterly worthless in the presence of an almighty God. And that's why he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I I have a dirty mouth. Why focus on his mouth? You may recall that Jesus says it's not about what goes into a man's mouth, but what comes out that defiles him. Isaiah seems to have a couple of things stand out to him in this moment. One is his goodness was not all that good. And two, his strength was not all that strong. Get this, nearly 90% of Americans think that they are above average when it comes to morality. Now think about that. 90% of us say we are above average when it comes to morality. That that's not mathematically possible. It shows that most of us feel deep down that we're pretty good. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than, and you've got somebody that you fill in the blank. When we are face to face with God Almighty, we immediately know we are not above average in goodness, in strength, in wisdom, in anything. So Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You've got to know Isaiah was, was looking for a place to hide. He wanted to get out. All he felt was guilt. And he thought he would die because his eyes had seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the one whose name is too holy to even be spoken out loud. 
Fortunately for Isaiah and for us, this holy God is also a God of grace, a God of hesed, of, of unfailing love. He doesn't leave Isaiah in this wiped out state for too long. He takes action and restores Isaiah's soul. He, he cleans him up on the inside. That's what the hot coal was all about. God cleans him with that fire. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Up to this point, Isaiah had only seen the glory of God, and now he hears the voice of God. And here, here's a pattern that we see repeated in history. It looks something like this. God appears to man, man is wiped out, God forgives and heals, and then God sins. It's similar to what's occurred with Jonah and Moses and Saul and Peter, from brokenness to mission. That's God's style. And the question God asks sounds simple. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah understands the question. He knew what God was asking. Whom shall I send to be a spokesman, spokesman for me, the creator of the universe? And notice his answer. Here am I, send me. He doesn't say, here I am. That would tell God where he's located. That's what Moses' response was as he stood by the burning bush. Here I am, God. I'm right here. That's what we do with each other. Text me. Uh, I'm here for you. Here's my email address. Here's my cell number. Here's my Here's my address. Just call me. I'll be going on with my life, but you, you feel free to call. Isaiah wanted to give God more than his location. He says, here am I. He's stepping forward for the mission right now in this moment. I will go, he says. You don't have to look any further, God. Send me. Here am I. Now, we can get pretty excited about Isaiah 6. This line looks good on a coffee mug or a T-shirt at a retreat. But we don't need to stop reading. We need to be aware and informed of Isaiah 6, 9. And God said, here's the message. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. God says to Isaiah, you, you keep talking about me. You keep telling people what I want you to tell them. They'll hear you, but they won't get it. They won't really hear you. They won't genuinely connect with your message. Anybody who has parented a teenager understood this. You, you've experienced this. You give lots of wisdom, uh, advice, um, insightful direction, passionate coaching, sacrificial accompaniment, and they look at you while you're talking, and they seem to hear your words, but it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 you know. The stare is blank, the mind is empty, and you wonder, is anybody home? You know your words are bouncing right off some kind of invisible force shield, but you keep on talking, knowing you're not being heard. And God says, Isaiah, this is what will be your life. This is what I'm sending you into. You will share a message which will be ignored by everyone you talk to. Practically speaking, God is describing our culture, which evidently is similar to Isaiah's culture. We're okay to talk about God, to talk about the gospel, to talk about Jesus, as long as people don't do anything about what they hear. I've thrown this quote out from Randy Harris before that I really like. He said, what we really want is a little bit of Jesus to round out our lives. I found a quote by a guy named Michael Spencer that's similar. He says, what we want is a spirituality that has Jesus on the cover, but not in the book. It's not uncommon to run into people who know truths about Jesus. They've heard the stories. They know something about his teaching and his message. But none of that has translated into a transformed life. People hear, but they aren't genuinely hearing. 
God tells Isaiah his audience will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Have you ever met anyone whose life is a mess? And this person would admit as much. They have uh, a different group of friends every year or so. They have the same money issues at the end of every month. They're always playing catch up with their responsibilities at work. And what this person misses is that, that they're the common denominator among all of their problems. They know their life is a mess, but they can't seem to figure out their role in the drama. They think they are constantly the victim. And God tells Isaiah, this is the way people will respond to the message I give you. They won't see themselves in it. The message won't connect. Now, who would want this kind of ministry? Who would apply for this job opening? Who says yes to smaller, colder, poorer? God says, I want you to move to Siberia experience no numerical growth, preach a message that no one pays serious attention to, and get paid next to nothing. And this is what Isaiah is saying yes to. No one says, I want to be faithful to God and make little little difference in the world around me, little difference in the lives of the people I work with, little difference through the work I do. So Isaiah asks a great, great question after God has laid out this depressing, depressing mission. He says, how long, O Lord? (laughs) How long am I going to have to do this? That's a fair question, don't you think? And look at the answer. It's not what he wanted to hear. Verse 11, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Isaiah, you keep after this until everyone is gone and you're the only one left to shut the gate on your way out. Matt Chandler has a good description of Isaiah's situation. He says, Isaiah is not called to be fruitful, but simply to be faithful. The priority God charges him with is not success, but integrity. I've spent my uh, entire adult life in vocational ministry, working with and for a church. Uh, And I had great training in graduate school and learned from a lot of people along the way about effective ministry strategies. Ministers often take a lot of pride in the number of people at their church or the number of people in the ministry that that they're involved with. And during um, my years here in campus ministry, we experienced a lot of good years of growth. And some of you are right there with me, and we had a lot of fun. And I felt good about myself during those seasons. I felt competent, capable, on target. But we also experienced some seasons of drought. And during those times, I felt just the opposite, incompetent, incapable, and lost. One season was especially difficult, and the timing was uniquely challenging. It was Zach's freshman year coming into UK. And so, you know, he had seen lots of years of vibrant campus ministry growing up, and we'd been to retreats and Sunday suppers and encounter, and I mean, he'd seen it all as a kid growing up, and now it's his turn. And to be honest, our our bench was pretty slim. In fact, we had a lot of empty seats on the bench, maybe six to eight students. So not only was I down because of the anemic numbers, I was also disappointed for Zach. I wanted him to have a transforming college and campus ministry experience. Our numbers were so low that we stopped doing our weekly meeting on campus, and we canceled Encounter, 
And we made a shift back to this building, to Southside, to work with the youth ministry for a semester. And that was a tough decision to make because it was uh, an admission of failure. Um, And it was a big blow to my pride. And I was disappointed for Zach. The campus ministry did end up growing again over the next couple of years. But I tell you, that was a difficult season. And I can also tell you, God did some work in those students and in me during that drought, which I never expected. I never saw it coming. He prepared us for a new season. And he sent several new students our way over the next few years. But there was no guarantee that that would happen. There aren't many books written about having faith but seeing no fruit. Those aren't on the bestseller list. But that's not an uncommon experience in our Bibles. Noah's message about a flood went unheard. Moses' message about idolatry was unappreciated. Jeremiah's message went unheeded. John the Baptist never did get to see Jesus' ministry, a ministry he prepared people for. And then we read this line in John six sixty six. From that time, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You need to catch that. People quit listening firsthand to the voice of Jesus. They covered their ears and they walked away from Jesus. In the Bible, faithfulness is the goal. Obedience is the target. In God's kingdom, success is turned upside down. I need to always remember that God is the Lord of the harvest, not me. He makes people grow, not me. And I must never forget God is faithful to me, especially when there doesn't seem to be much growth going on. Here's something to consider from this dialogue between Isaiah and God. How a person responds to Jesus' teaching is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful and to be obedient. Whether someone rejects or embraces Jesus is on them. We told God's, we're told God's desire is that everyone uh, is to be a part of his family, and he's definitely working toward that end. He's initiating with people. He's opening doors. He's revealing himself and his love and his, his kindness and his holiness. He is all in on this mission, and still people walk away from him. They don't choose to hear. They don't choose to understand. As I was studying this text in Isaiah, I kept thinking about an odd event in Jesus' life that helped me understand the bigger picture. It's in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They, Jesus and the followers, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he spit on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but it's like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. That's a strange deal, isn't it? I mean, was Jesus having an off day? Is that what's going on? This, did this guy do something wrong that messed things up, like blink before the spit got in there? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But I have an idea of why this odd encounter might be in Mark. And here's the thought. We all need a second touch and a third touch and a fourth and fifth. My experience has been that God prompts specific moments in our life for the purpose of clearing our, clarifying our vision of, of who he is. And every time we see more clearly who God is, we also get a clear understanding of who we are. 
I'm not certain that this is the point Mark wants us to take from this or if this is what Jesus had in mind, but I do know that's what seems to be, that seems to be the way our journey goes with God. We may not see clearly at first, but over time, as God keeps showing up, the picture comes into greater focus. Assuming the book of Isaiah was written in chronological order, uh, Isaiah is doing the work of a prophet in chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 6 is where I meet, Isaiah meets God in this temple vision. He gains a more vivid view of himself and of God. He, he hears the invitation to be sent, and he eagerly volunteers. And then he goes back to work as a prophet in chapters 7 to 66. It seems to me that God's desire is for all of us to experience a second touch and a third touch and a fourth and fifth. And his desire is for each of us to see him more clearly. And there are so many ways that touches come our way. Primarily, they come through reading your Bible. Uh, But they also come through reading other books, conversations, events that happen to us. Maybe a surgery, maybe a betrayal, a bankruptcy, a death, just the experience of parenting, failing a class, falling off a roof. Each touch is an opportunity to gain a clearer view of God and a clearer view of ourselves. And each touch helps us to understand it's not about me. Each touch opens up for us other opportunities for ministries, opportunities, opportunities to be sent. It may open the door a bit wider, or it may be a very specific ministry door that opens up to you. Each touch equips us in a different way to be sent as God's ambassadors. For many of us, this may look like it did for Isaiah. This encounter in chapter 6 didn't change what Isaiah did, but it did change who he was and how he saw himself and how he saw God. And when you change on the inside, though you may contribute, uh, continue with your same role, you'll change your perspective of how to do it. Being sent means, may mean you're in the same role, but you operate daily with less fear because, because you know more about how powerful God is. You operate daily with more love because of the way you've realized that you're loved. You operate daily with increased gratitude because you know what you truly deserve. Embracing a clearer view of God breathes fresh air into old and stale routines. I want to be real with you about this for a moment because here's a hang-up. Though God's desire is for us to see him clearly, he has also made us with the freedom to choose. We can choose how much clarity we want dialed in. We can choose to embrace these second touches or we can choose to run away. And I believe there are times we honestly aren't interested in seeing God nor ourselves more clearly. We're not interested in being sent to any place or to any people other than where we are today. We're not interested in being different. We don't mind staying the same as we are today for lots of reasons. My suspicion is that sometimes when God breaks through the clouds and dials in the clarity, our appropriate and natural response will be just like Isaiah's. We will have the response he has, woe to me. I am undone. I'm not together. I'm wiped out. I'm doomed. We will experience an increased level of awareness as God comes into sharper focus, and that awareness will enlighten our own state of unholiness and brokenness. And that's not a pleasant experience. Who wants to be humbled? Who wants to be put in their place? Who wants to be broken? So I doubt if we always take advantage of these opportunities for a second touch. Sometimes we realize it's going to be painful, so we leave the temple, avoiding the encounter with God. But here's here's what also seems to be true. We can still be sent. 
We can still be God's ambassadors, even if we choose to stay where we are for now. Making that choice will limit the opportunities we have to experience God's plan for us, but he's still going to send us to do his work. It's not like we're not believers. He'll send us just as we are, and he'll keep sending us opportunities to dial in the clarity, opportunities to gain a clearer vision and understanding of who he is and who we are. He will give us opportunities to run toward him, not away from him. He will give us opportunities to flex our faithfulness in spite of the outcome. He will give us opportunities to practice obedience even when nothing and nobody changes. We'll have the opportunity to be transformed when no one around seems to care. As we see God more clearly through these second and third and fourth touches, we'll also grow to understand that faithfulness and obedience, faithfulness and obedience, that's what makes God smile. So Isaiah's situation may be like yours. You're doing good stuff daily. You're out there living with kingdom principles. You love people. You serve others. You think of yourself less. And with all that going on, God still has more for you. He wants you to see him more clearly and yourself too. So I guess the question we have to deal with is this. Is where you are today good enough for you? Have you seen enough of God to be satisfied, to be content? Or do you want more? More of God, greater self-awareness, upgrade on your ministry capacities, more and different opportunities to make a difference, opportunities to be sent. Are you satisfied or do you want to experience more? And here's the invitation today. God gives you the opportunities to sharpen your focus of who he is and who you are so that he can send you out as divinely equipped ambassador, making a kingdom difference in this world. What will you do when those moments come your way? Will you run out of the temple? Or will you stick around and embrace the discomfort, embrace the brokenness, embrace the reality that comes your way? When, the, when you're in the presence of a holy God. Let's stand and sing together.